Well, good morning. So this is going to be uh, a lesson that uh, is connected to a lesson I gave about a month ago. Unfortunately, it being a while ago, um, hopefully it's not too disjointed. Um, but I want to point out something just about the songs that we just sang. I think Brandon just did such a good job of, especially those last two songs, picking out songs that I think really reinforce ultimately what we're going to be talking about in the lesson in the form of song. Um, number 420, O oh, Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that third verse really raised, resonated with me and, and just really summarizing the, the main point of what, what this is that we're going to be studying. It said, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Never let me wander from thee, never leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. So about four weeks ago, um, I did a lesson looking at the glory and the beauty of God's jealousy. Um, we started in Exodus, and we're not going to be turning to those passages, but we started in Exodus where God actually calls himself a jealous God. And we looked at the Old Testament to really see what that really means as it's demonstrated. Um, there's kind of an interesting contrast, if your Bibles are open to James uh, in the section that we read in the scripture reading. So there's two times James points out jealousy as a sinful and ungodly thing. Chapter 3, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. So you have those two passages that clearly show that jealousy in that context is ungodly and divisive. But then in chapter 4, verse 5, which really is the theme verse for this lesson and why we're here, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. About four weeks ago, we looked at the fact that God's relationship with his people is like a husband to his wife. And what we looked at is jealousy in a healthy context, in a good and selfless context, like in marriage. It's a mutual desire for commitment. It reinforces the care that we have for our spouse. It shows how much we value the relationship, how, how much we value them and their well-being, how we don't want to lose them, how we don't want them to suffer. It clarifies the definition of the relationship with your spouse. And in the Old Testament, when we saw God's jealousy, we saw that with God, that God's jealousy really set a conditional foundation for the relationship between God and his people. And we saw how God would sacrifice everything to maintain that relationship, especially up to the sacrifice of his own son to win the devotion of his people. We saw in the Old Testament that God warned them against idolatry and how idolatry was ultimately not in their best interest, this divided loyalty. And God urges them, just be loyal to me, just have a mutual commitment in the relationship, which Israel as a nation was never truly willing to do. And what we found is God's desire that is in the form of his passionate jealousy is to have unity with his people, to have the freedom to bless his people, to be as close as possible with his people, and to protect his people 
from the deceit of things that divide and destroy. That's what we're going to see in James chapter 4. So we're going to be looking at how do we respond to God's jealousy? How can, we, how can we be unified with God in response to his jealousy? Because I'm going to suggest to you that God's jealousy is really what sets the standard for the kind of relationship he desires to have with us. Um, look back at, J- at James 3, verse 17. The wisdom from above is first what? It's first pure. Then what? peaceable. I think a lot of times we get this backwards. We want peace so badly that oftentimes we seek peace without purity. And peace in the Bible, uh, by God's definition, it isn't just the absence of trouble or problems. It's the idea of wholeness or being made whole. And we can't have that wholeness with each other or with God without first striving for purity. So it's ironic, right? Like in verse 17, he says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. And then in chapter 4, in the first 10 verses, he throws out these very intense accusations, right? So he immediately starts saying there's quarrels, there's conflicts, and there's lust, there's war, you're murdering, you're committing adultery on God. But these things are being drawn out, not just to throw people away or just throw accusations out, but it's because of the demand that there has to first be trouble with what makes impure to then confront that, resolve it, and to have peace in holiness with God, to have a whole kind of peace that first starts with purity. Maybe think about it like if your body is internally cancerous and sick, right? You can choose to ignore that because of knowing, well, if I get this diagnosed, Maybe I have to have chemotherapy. My life has to come to a halt. There are all these hard things I'm going to have to do. But ultimately, if you want to be healed and if you want that to be treated, you're going to have to do the hard work of confronting that and letting the doctor work with the internal chaos that's going on within your body and treating it to then be made whole again, right? And our relationship with each other and with God is no different. Um, So we're going to start with verses 1 through 5. And apparently, I made a mistake in the order to not have the animation where they come on piece by piece. So I'll be extra careful to point out where we are in the slides here. Um, But in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I really want to focus with God's jealousy, how God is focusing on where our desires are, where our desires are leading us, and what we choose to do with our desires, which is, I think, the reason why these accusations of murder and adultery are drawn out. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 again here. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So the first thing I want to point out here is, I think, really critical. That at the top of the board here, desire is the door into the heart. And I think we see this in Genesis chapter 3 from the very beginning. We see it when Satan was trying to uh, face-to-face confront Eve and lead her to sin. 
We see it when Jesus was face to face with Satan in the 40 days in the wilderness, that Satan was trying to work with desire to plant deception. And so desire is the door into the heart, either for Satan to plant deception and to reinforce deception in our lives, or our desires can be a door for God to plant, not plant its truth, but plant truth, um, for God to plant truth, to reinforce truth, to cultivate it in our lives. Really, desire is the door that is the crossroads between those two things. So in verses 1 through 3, I think we see that God is equipping us. And he calls us to examine our desires in three ways. And these are three things that I think we see in the Proverbs, a book dedicated to wisdom, and really learn to think with godly wisdom about ourselves. Um, We need to think about the source of our desires. Where are our desires really coming from? We need to think about the source. Um, If you look at verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? And so God is calling us to examine the source of our desires. The second thing in that same verse, but you look at verse 2 as well, is God wants us to see the real effect of our desires. Satan wants us to cover the effect and not think about how our sin really affects our relationship with him, the reality of how it affects our lives in general, how it affects our emotions, how it, how it uh, affects our outlook on the world, our hope. But God really wants us to see how destructive sin's effect is on our lives and how selfishness does not have a good outcome. And so that's the third thing, that he wants us to see the outcome of our desires. We'll see that more when we reflect back on on chapter 1. So if you look at verse 2, there's something that's said that I think can be kind of hard to tangibly grasp. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And I think we need to work on taking this very personally, right? Um, As far as I know, um, pretty sure nobody in here has murdered anybody in their lifetime, right? Um, But I think it's important that we really reflect on what James is intending to mean here. I think he's using extreme language to help us, like we talked about with parables, how sometimes God will use language that seems exaggerated to equip us really to reflect on the reality of where we're really putting ourselves or where our heart really is. We need to consider, this is the third point there, the second bullet point in uh, number two there, the verse two. We really need to consider the effect of our desires in view of Jesus and the cross. And what I mean by that is reflect on why Jesus was crucified. There were people who had desires and they knew that the only way for for them to have the freedom to live out their desires without any contradiction or conflict, Jesus had to die. And they were willing to destroy Jesus and humiliate him on the cross to gain freedom to act out their desires. Even Pilate, when he was seeing Jesus put on trial, he knew that it was because of envy that they had handed him over to be tried and crucified, right? So look at Proverbs chapter 1. I think we see this right at the very beginning of Proverbs. Just like with James saying, you lust, you do not have, so you murder. And how it's easy to look at that and say, well, I mean, I'm not murdering anybody, so I don't really see myself in that position. Proverbs chapter 1 does the same thing. Kind of a side note really quick, by the way, James is like the New Testament Proverbs. Proverbs and James just really connect together in so many different ways. But in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, in the very beginning of Proverbs, 
he points out a situation that, it, again, is very easy to think, I'm not really seeing myself as ever being in that situation, but I think we're meant to see ourselves in it with wisdom, just like in James. Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall, have, we shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush for their own lives. I'm going to read verse 19, but I want to ask some questions before we read that. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody gave you this invitation? I've never had somebody say, hey, why don't you come murder some people with us? We're going to get rich. If we go and we shed blood, we're going to be able to fill our houses with spoil. I don't think in Proverbs that he's saying this is the exact invitation you're going to be made in, in the very off chance that, uh, that somebody ever abrasively just confronts you with this, say no. Proverbs is helping us have more discretion and wisdom to examine what something really is. Verse 19, what is this really? What is he talking about? So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence takes away the life of its possessors. This is just a warning about greed. And so the question is, are you willing to violate what God says and commands to get what you want? Are you willing to set God aside, to set his will aside, in order to get what you want? That's what we've all been willing to do. And so we just need to have more wisdom to understand that when we are willing to violate God's will to get what we want, when we follow a desire that is directly against God, there is something deeper going on that God is trying to confront us with in that. We need to see Jesus on the cross and realize that those things are not as inconsequential as we may think. So again, verse 19, the writer here is illustrating something. These are the ways of greed. When somebody is willing to pursue gain, at God's expense, when they're willing to violate what God says to get what they want. So I want to summarize this with one statement. Desire without God, the Bible calls that lust. And so if lust is kind of like a hard word to work out, like what does that mean? It's desire without God. And so we're going to look a little bit further at lust and contrast that with good desire that involves God. Uh, look back at chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, and you can see on the board, temptation is not sin, and God equips us to have a choice in the matter, right? So James chapter 1, 12 through 16, the idea is God is equipping us and calling us to really examine our desires and to make decisions that we can make because of his grace, because of faith, because of our trust in him and our dependence on him. So look back at James chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
Let no one say when he was tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So again, we just need to have more wisdom in relation to trial and temptation. So temptation is not the same thing as sin. And that may not help you, but growing up, after I started thinking more seriously about God and my relationship with him and thinking more about his word, it actually blew my mind to realize when I'm tempted, that is not the same thing as being outright in sin that there's a decision that God calls me to make. I can choose not to be led by my own desires into sin. And I want to be very clear about this. There are some doctrines that are taught in the world that we have like a sinful nature, that we're just sinning all the time. We're helplessly sinning every day. We're just constantly sinning against God. And biblically, that is just so false. It's not that we're inescapably sinful and we're doomed to constantly give in to sin. We have no choice in the matter. Rather, it's that we cannot escape that we are weak. What God confronts us with is that we are weak and that we choose what we do with our weakness. We can choose either to depend on God in our weakness, to endure on what God provides in our weakness, to trust him, to love him, to seek him and endure through faith, or we can choose to depend on ourselves and on Satan And again, like we mentioned before, allow deceit to be planted and strengthened in our heart by being carried away to the point of choosing sin instead of choosing to endure. So temptation is not sin. It puts us at a crossroads to choose where are we going to invest our hearts? Are we either going to strengthen the truth in our lives or are we going to choose to let deceitfulness be strengthened in our lives? So look back at chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where he calls recalls the reader, adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? I want to think about where does adultery begin? Where does it begin? Adultery always begins with an inappropriate friendship. And I think this is really important to think about because a husband, a wife, they can have friendships, can't they? Can talk to someone of the opposite gender. It's not as if they can't have any conversation or say a word to someone of the opposite gender, there's a very critical line between having innocent conversation and talking with people compared to investing in a friendship where you're beginning to spend time alone with that person, you're seeking comfort from another person of the opposite gender instead of your husband or your wife, and that becomes an extremely slippery slope really fast, right? So why do those inappropriate friendships begin? Because of desire. Because this relationship is feeding into an unfulfilled, hidden desire. And because this relationship over here is giving me more freedom to receive something to feed into that desire, I'm going to invest more and more into this friendship and let it escalate more and more. Why do I bring that up? In verse uh, 4 again. We may do things in the world where we eat food, maybe we watch a movie or we watch a TV show, we enjoy something. Um, There's a dramatic difference 
between doing something in innocence, in innocence and joy where God can be glorified and investing to the point where something in the world is taking your heart away from God and is being exalted into a position it doesn't belong in. I think too many Christians fall away because of this. They don't learn how to really give God their heart and desire him in truly deep and meaningful ways. This is how I fell away when I was a teenager. When I was growing up with Christian parents and had become a Christian, um, I cultivated a love for the world more and more, and ultimately pleasure became my God. And it took the form of seemingly innocent things that I was just over-investing in. I would get my comfort from movies and video games. I would browse the internet forever doing nothing. And then that made me then with my schoolwork, very neglectful, important things were being neglected. I had no prayer life. I never read the Bible on my own. And eventually that turned into pornography addiction and other things once I got away from my parents' household. And it's like my life was getting flushed down the toilet. But where did that all begin? It was with seemingly innocent things that I wasn't keeping in the boundaries of a love and a desire for God. I was not learning to cultivate a truly genuine desire for God. And instead, although I went to meet with the church at every time there was an assembly, my desire, every moment outside of that, was to the world. And I was making myself a friend to the world. And here's another important aspect of that. Adulterous spouses. One of the signs of infidelity and adultery is the innocent party will all of a sudden start getting looked at with suspicion when there's nothing going on, there's no signs of any problem, and they'll start getting accused of things, and it's like, why are you accused? What, what are you bringing this up for, right? It's because of the convicted conscience and, and guilt that's being projected on the other person. And so adultery on God has the same effect. It's impossible to see God in his glory. It is impossible to value God, to trust him, to place your heart into his hands, to praise him like you ought to and could, and to see the glory of his deliverance in enduring through temptation if we're just habitually divided in our loyalties apart from God. I think oftentimes a difficulty in really investing in God and trusting him is because of spiritual adultery. We just need to be more committed to God. And we have to accept his word says this is about being completely given to God, not just on the exterior, but learning what it means to have a true desire for God. So we need to think more about these things. We need to be more reflective with our desires, thinking about their source, thinking about their effect, and thinking about their outcome. And we just need to call ourselves into question about these things. But ultimately, choosing to desire God, solutions are actually very simple and very straightforward when we're seeing God as a person and treating him like a person, like a husband or a wife would treat their spouse in a situation that's being described here. We need to think more about God as a person who loves us, who is trying to be close with us. Before I read verses 6 through 10, Look at verse 5 again. He jealously desires the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Why is friendship with the world hostility toward God? Think about if one person in a relationship is fighting aggressively to keep their spouse at a distance. They've got lines in the sand. I don't want you to get closer than this. I don't want to be investigated more than this. I don't want our love to go farther than this. And so they're fighting to keep that distance. Now imagine the other person in the relationship is aggressively fighting to be closer. 
And they're trying to be closer. They're trying to interact with the other person and have conversations. And isn't that going to result in conflict? But where's the conflict coming from? So we have to understand when it says you make yourself an enemy of God, it's not that if you love the world that God is all of a sudden out to destroy you and he wants to just wipe you out. It's that there's a conflict and you're an enemy because you are fighting against God in a battle you can't win and you simply just need to surrender. So what does that look like? When we see God relationally, it's very simple. Let's read verses 6 through 10. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So first with, he gives greater grace. I think this is an important foundation for practical solutions. We've been talking a lot about the power of God. We sung about the faithfulness and reliability of God. Um, This idea that he gives greater grace to me is astonishing. With those same people, which me as the focus, if I'm putting myself in a position where I'm I'm throwing God away to get what I want. I'm committing adultery on God in the relationship. For it to say, but he gives greater grace. God is always willing to seek solutions at every point. Because of God's dependable character, God is always fighting for reconciliation, not division. God is willing to create solutions. He is fighting for solutions. I have never seen anyone ever fall away without God's aggressive intervention. It's always up to the person if they're willing to listen and allow the boundaries they're creating to be put down and destroyed. But God is always looking to create solution. He's always willing to give more than enough to fill every need, even needs that we needlessly create by sinning for no reason against God and creating problems in the relationship that have no reason to be there. If we blame God, if we have doubts with God, if we have habitual sin in our lives, the problem is never that God is not giving enough. That's never the problem. The problem is always our commitment, our trust in him, and whether or not we're really willing to submit and listen to what he says. God is always willing to meet our need wherever we are. We cannot make a need too great for God to fill, and that is the cross of Jesus. He died on the cross for God to demonstrate you cannot go farther than what I'm giving you. You cannot push my love farther than what I've already done. There's no way. And so God is always seeking to justify us, not to condemn us. But that puts the ball in our court. So we need to submit to God and draw near to him. We need to surrender our hearts to God, not just behaviors. We need to truly desire closeness with God and all that is entailed by that. We have to trust that God is truly looking after our best interests, that God has the ability to understand what it means to live an abundant and blessed life, that his commandments purify us, they cleanse us, they help us to have joy in the end and and endure temptation. And so we have to surrender our heart and our will to his guidance We need to think about his instructions and follow those instructions and put them in our minds and put them in our hearts and walk with him. In verse uh, 7, we need to resist the devil. I think we're not as helpless as we put on that we are. Can you imagine in a relationship, can you imagine 
If there was open adultery constantly happening on one party and the spouse that was innocent confronted the other person and said, what are you doing? Stop this madness. And they said, I need your understanding. This is just really hard for me. And I've been involved in this in a long time and I just really need your understanding here. It's like, <laughs> you kidding me? Stop now. But we treat God like he's make-believe. We, we make this grand exception for God where we look at temptation and think, my, it's, it's, just, it's just so hard. And so God, just please show me understanding while I give in to this sin habitually for comfort. We can resist the devil. A lot of this is we have to be honest with ourselves, honest with God, and we need to be more honest with others. This leads to verse 9 where, yes, that is extremely uncomfortable but it is a part of the process of really trusting God, trusting his process. We can resist the devil. God has overwhelmingly equipped us to endure temptation and to endure trials. We're not helpless. We're not alone. The problem is simply that we depend far too much on ourselves. We give in way too easily to our own desires. We don't think enough about what Satan is doing by turning us away from God and we don't see the relationship with God in all of its meaningful angles. Can you imagine, those of you who are parents, if somebody kidnapped your kid right in front of you and they were okay with it, they just went along with it. Imagine you brought them back. Wouldn't you say, you need to scream, yell, fight, be in distress. Don't just let someone take you away. But we just let Satan take us away. And we don't call out to God in distress. We don't slam on the emergency button. So we need to cleanse our hands. Look at verse uh, 8. We need to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. The idea of cleansing our hands is, I think, a, just a committed determination. And I think if we make these determinations, God's power is available to strengthen us. Again, not that we aren't weak. And There's a big difference between truly struggling to overcome sin and truly struggling while determining, I want this out of my life. Help me. Help me to grow. Help me to overcome. There's a difference between that and then with contentment, I need this. I need this comfort in my life. I want this. And leaving it hidden and far away from the sight of others. We need to determine just to stop sinful habits. We need to see the impurity that sin brings into our lives, how it it destroys and it divides and it, it makes it harder to see God's love and, and to see his power and his glory. And we just need to be so much more affected by sin. So we need to determine to stop sinful habits. It really is simple in just making that determination. We need to purify our hearts. We need to honestly confront our hidden desires. And we need to be diligently seeking to get to the root of our desires. Why do we want sin? What are we gaining from it? There's a proverb that said, stolen bread tastes sweet, but afterwards it is like grovel in the mouth, right? And so often with sin, that is the case is it feels good for a moment, but then as soon as you're finished afterwards, it just leaves you so empty and depressed. And so we have to constantly be meditating more and more on why are we pursuing the things we're pursuing? What are our ambitions? And is there... Is there a way that we're hurting or hindering our relationship with God with our ambitions and desires? We need to think about where we're investing ourselves the most. We need to consider what is captivating our mind, what is pulling us on a daily basis. 
And we'd be making decisions to be pulled in God's direction and using our will. So the last thing, and this is, this is challenging. What if, just in conversation, I said, you need to be biz- miserable and mourn and weep. Is that just <laughs> going like, to be a faucet where you just flip the faucet, you turn it, and it just starts pouring out? I, I don't think that's the case. I think this is a call to something deeply personal and meditative. Um, there are times when our laughter and our joy, the contentment we have in our lives, there are times where that just really needs to change. This gets back to the Beatitudes. Jesus started his first sermon in Matthew 5 saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So James is not just trying to browbeat the reader and shame and humiliate them. This leads to verse 10. He is working with God's exaltation that we really need to be heartbroken by sin. And if we aren't, we really need to pursue that because that's what God desires, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. And so we do, at times, just need to learn to be miserable and mourn and weep. We need to let the consequence of sin sink in while leading us to God. The sorrow of the world only leads to death and insecurity. The sorrow of God, it leads to repentance and everlasting life. And so that is the invitation this morning. Um, that if you're in a position where you need the encouragement of the group, the invitation is even for just asking others for help and encouragement, just to bring an awareness of needs that may exist in your life. The invitation is for confessing sin and wanting to just break the hardness that sin creates and open it up for healing. It may be that you're here and you're not a Christian at all, that you have not put on Christ in repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're in these positions, don't let time delay. Bring things forward among, your, among God's people so that we can be concerned and help and that we can be what God has called us to be for each other, to serve each other so that we can be built up and exalted in God's eyes. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, bring it forward while we stand and sing.